Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey, everybody. I hope that your training has been going well with your dogs. For many of us here in the U.S., our season is starting to come to a close. In Atlanta, Georgia, it is already warming up, unfortunately, and we've started taking a bit of a shift in our dog activities, transitioning away from our bike joring towards a little bit more of our canny hiking. We've got some pretty big trips planned, so we're working hard to keep our fitness up from our mushing season and change pace to add a little more mileage and add a little bit of weight. I hope that the podcast episodes have been keeping you busy in the car, driving to and from the trailhead to have fun with your dogs. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. There are a few ways that you can support the podcast to help us continue to make episodes. We have a Patreon community where for as little as $2 a month, you can join for some special behind the scenes content, some private YouTube training tutorials, and even some special classes that we run like Q&As, training nights, and fitness classes. We also have a merchandise store on Bonfire where you can order some gear to lounge around the house or take your dogs out running. We recently got an update from one of our members sharing that she wore her tank top while running a half marathon in Hawaii. So that was pretty cool. I also appreciate reviews. Reviews on podcast platforms help us connect with more people so that we can keep spreading the word about dog-powered sports and how more people can get out and get fit with their dogs. So if there's something that you would like, you can find links to all of those in the show notes. And now it's time to jump in for our episode today. I sit down for a nice chat with Cruz Schubert, and we talk all about mentors and mentees. Not all of us have access to local running groups and local mushing communities. So she shares with us some tips on what she shares with her young mentees, as well as how you might be able to find some additional assistance, even if you don't live near a local club. Let's take a listen. Cruz, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. So before we get started, talk to us a little bit about how you got started in dogs and sled dog sports. Well, I, my mother actually had called me and told me there was a dog in need and I didn't know what breed it was. I had no idea. And, you know, I, so I jumped in my car and got over there and found myself face to face with the most beautiful Siberian Husky I'd ever seen. And anybody who's dealt with Siberians um, knows that they are, I call them Uber dogs because they are so intelligent so mischievous, so energetic. I knew that I was in over my head immediately. So I made a Facebook page uh, and started to reach out to other Siberian people and mushers. From there, went to Canacross, to Scooter, to Rig, to now having 10 of them in my house. It's a snowball effect. (laughs) Yes, you can't have just one. (laughs) So how did you kind of develop from, you know, finding this dog and giving it a new uh, shot at life to now having your own breeding program? You know, it's a learning curve. And I tell everybody it's a learning curve and there's no such thing as silly questions or stupid questions because we all didn't know things at some point, whether it's good nutrition 
uh, you know, uh, what kind of brushes to use on these double-coated dogs, booties, what they're for, when do you booty? It takes a mentor, typically. And I was very lucky because the mushing community is full of people who do nothing more than love to tell you, uh, share with you their knowledge and their expertise. I so I ended up with yeah I ended up now with ten and have a, a my own small small breeding program. I have three females right now that can have babies. Uh, our last litter was in uh, let's see here it's been this June will be two years ago. So you mentioned a little bit about how you did scooter and a little bit of canacross, and I know you do sledding as well. Talk to us a little yes. bit about kind of your favorite aspects of dog powered sports. Are there certain areas that you really enjoy more than the others? You know, this is funny because as much as I love the races, I love just getting together with other mushers on a relaxed long weekend and running dogs. No schedule, no pressed time. Everybody gears up and heads out on the trail at their leisure. I went so far as to buy some land up in Michigan. Uh, I guess it's been a year and a half ago now with a couple other mushers and we call it the Musher Sanctuary. And we are nestled into the Huron Manistee Forest in Baldwin. We have some of the only sled dog only trails there in the Northern 48 that are, you know, that no motorized vehicles are allowed on. So we like to go out on our private trails there. Um, I take up people I'm mentoring for lessons. Uh, I have a junior musher right now who is, she's a teenager and has one dog and her name is Elizabeth. I'm very proud of Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth has uh, had some learning disabilities uh, and the dogs have helped her overcome these, these abilities and she's getting straight A's. Um, she's becoming quite the little dog handler too. That's incredible. I love that too, that it's not so much the competition aspect of it for you, but just enjoying the people and enjoying the dogs. Yes, our kennel motto is spiritual enlightenment through sled dogs. These dogs, and if I cry, I will apologize, but if it were not for these dogs, I would not be here right now. Uh, I've battled depression and a terminal illness uh, since my very early 20s. Um, these dogs make sure I'm up, moving, and I have a reason to engage each day. Uh, my first one, Gidget, she was the dog I went to rescue. Um, I, I looked up at the sky after she held my gaze for probably 30 seconds. And I said to the universe, I said, my life is about to change, isn't it? And from that moment forward, I have been successful battling the depression. I'm very lucky I have systemic lupus um, that it's under control. Being healthy with these dogs, they encourage me to treat myself with as much respect as I treat them. And they show me the best way to live. I'm very passionate about these dogs. I do a lot of writing about them. Um, they are my muses. That's pretty incredible. I think that a lot of people will that will connect with them because I think a lot of people that are 
in dog sports and in dogs, it, it becomes a part of them. And it, it's so, it's such a special thing to have such a strong connection with your dogs and to be able to, you know, not just appreciate their company, but thank them for all the things that they give us because they really do bring a lot of joy into our lives and give us a lot of purpose. They do. And they insist that we meet them at their level and they will wait for us as many times as we fall down they will wait for us now they may look at you as you fall off the sled for the 10th time like you're an amateur you know and, <laughs> and point and laugh but they'll still wait for you yeah yeah they do there there have been many times that my dogs have been the reason that i get up and go out even if my body doesn't feel like doing it that day and it's i'm always grateful that they gave me that push that i needed I call them my spirit guides, my angels from heaven. And I believe that they are here to teach us life's most important lessons. And it goes so far beyond unconditional love. It goes to courage, bravery, how to live in the moment, how to create your own joy. You watch a dog just being a dog out in, the, in their yard. They roll in the grass on their backs pick up a toy and throw it in the air. They don't care, you know, if you are at the top of the podium or if you're holding the red lantern. They don't care as long as they get to do that with us. How lucky are we to yeah. have that in our lives? We are so blessed. Yeah, they really do. When you, when you were describing that moment of the dog in the yard, I can totally picture it. And there have been so many times where I've watched my dogs out in the yard and just thought to myself, I need to learn how to appreciate every little moment, just like they do. Absolutely. You know, and they show us in a pack, how to get along with other people, even if they're not the best of friends, they still agree that they will have some respect and give each other space. Mm -hmm. um, it's, they really can teach us how to have a better beat on life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you are not uh, enjoying the company of your dogs, which is probably not very often, what do you do professionally? Um, I am a psychologist, a life coach. Uh, there's a thousand words for it. My background is varied. I have uh, degrees in women's studies, uh, uh, nursing, and then psychology. I went on for a, a, a master's. And uh, in that work, I pull them all together. Most of my clients are women. I will not fib just because I, as a woman, I've studied women's history, women's sciences, and medicine. Um, and I seem to be uh, better able to do that, not that I don't have male clients. Um, and I'm very lucky that I, uh, my ex-husband and I have a, I call it a truce and I have to kind of laugh uh, with, uh, I have some farm equipment that uh, uh, through his business, I buy and sell and it helps pay for dog bones. I would imagine that that line of professional work helps you tremendously in caring for your dogs and kind of taking care of yourself uh, and taking care of your mentees as well. Yes, it does, because people, I do a lot of work remotely, uh, but people will come to me, and it's interesting the way the dogs react to different people. I have uh, Angel, for example. She's my oldest Siberian female. She's kind of alpha up the whole pack, 
she will gravitate toward other powerful women that are having issues and she will not leave their side. Um, if they happen to have small children with them, Angel will entertain those babies while the adult is talking with me. Um, there are teenagers that my yearlings will gravitate toward. Um, that playful, wonderful, dynamic, crazy teenage energy, you know. Um, but the dogs pick the person they're going to sit with. And just the act of petting a dog, because they just sit right next to my clients, petting a dog lowers the blood pressure, it releases endorphins, and it kind of distracts you a little bit and lets you open up more when you're talking. Uh, you know, so over the last, you know, 20 years, I, I have just noticed that they are a conduit for people to express what's going on in their soul. That's pretty special. I do find that certain dogs gravitate towards different people. And I was just talking with somebody recently about how our relationship with dogs is so interesting because even though we don't technically speak the same language, they pick up on our body signals. They always know when something is a little off and they're always there to kind of help you work through that. And it's because they are so connected to us. They're so observant of what we're doing, our body language. And I think that that's something really special that, you know, they, a gift that they can give us as well. And you think about the science of it. We've got dogs that can sniff out cancer. Um, which just amazes me. We have dogs that can detect seizures before they happen. These dogs with their sense, just their noses alone, can detect hormonal imbalances in people. If the cortisol, which is a stress hormone, uh, that dog will calmly sit down next to that person so you can pet and they, very carefully, you know, our bodies begin to relax as the endorphins enter and the cortisol levels drop. These dogs are, they're little lie detectors that way, except they do it for our emotions. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So one of the things that I know that you're really big on is mentoring people, kind of helping the next generation of mushers. And as somebody who comes from an area of the world where there are not a lot of other mushers, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, I remember when I first got started, I was in a small college town in Georgia and everybody's recommendation was to find a local mushing club. And I was like, that doesn't exist in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to find that. Um, and so I think that that would resonate with a lot of people because while there are a lot of mushing communities and the online community is great, not everybody has that kind of in-person support that, that it sounds like you are really able to provide to a lot of people as a mentor yourself what do you hope to be able to provide somebody that you are mentoring? To set them up with the tools they need to go out and have the most fun they possibly can with their dogs. And on the way, a little spiritual enlightenment tossed in there, you know, but it is about the future and it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, a friend of mine is, I believe, in his early, mid-70s. He only got started maybe five or six years ago. Uh, I've got my junior musher, who is 15. She is the future of this sport. 
So, you know, she will have longer in the sport than my friend who's in his 70s, but getting in the new faces, because we all have the common ground of the love of the dog. Then we bring our personal strengths with us to the community that just build the community. You know, we are across the board in so many things, but the young people excite me because they really are the future. And you've got, you know, I, you know, at my, at, I'm in my early fifties. So, you know, to me, you've got, uh, you know, the, you've got Nova out there and Mandy and all of these amazing young people that are tearing it up. They are doing great and they're learning and sharing through social media they're little beacons to people their age um, that say, hey, you know, if they can do this and be successful, I can too. You know, I'm just an old fuddy-duddy. I get you set up with the good stuff, but they're the ones, you know, that will be the posters on the wall that, that you know, these young people look up to. The junior I did rod that just ran. Wow, these young people are amazing. But anybody can mentor. You know, everybody's got a, ne a nephew or a niece or a cousin or a neighbor. You've, you know, most of us at this point have a, a veteran dog or two that's bomb-proof. I've got several of them here. Put them on a rig, put them on the bike, show them what to do, teach them the commands, send them out with that veteran dog on a one-mile loop. They'll be hooked, they'll be hooked. And what better thing to teach a young person responsibility, compassion, um, a, a, a social structure around other people of like character and moral compass, because we're all dog people and we all love living critters. You know, we, we're all critter people. And, and I think that makes us pretty special as a group. And to share that passion with the next generation because they're going to take over, you know, for me when I'm retired, and they'll be teaching the next generation. So it's uh, I get very excited about our juniors. Uh, little Aubrey, I don't know if you know little Aubrey. Aubrey is half my height. She passed me at a dryland race, and I thought I was going to have to dive off and save the child because I had a dog want to visit. Um, nope, she that almost tipped it over. Boy, I tell you what, she just hops right back on and off they go. Tough little girl. And that's what we need. We need these kids like that that are dynamic because that's what the dog sports teach them is how to overcome obstacles and face challenges just like they will in life. And there are a lot of challenges and obstacles out there these days that are very scary. And to build these kids up within the dog sports world to handle outside challenges needs to be one of our priorities. I think something that comes up quite a bit when I'm talking to other people that I'm interviewing is a lot of people have kind of learned what they're doing from either family members that were started in the sport before them or from other, you know, their community, their local community around them. And so I think a lot of this important information that everybody needs to learn when they get started can be hard to find if they don't have that local community. So if somebody is That's looking- right. 
if somebody is looking for a mentor or kind of looking for people that they can connect with and learn from that might not be in person, are there certain questions that you recommend people ask or what kind of, you know, likeness should they be looking for in that mentor? Absolutely. You know, one of the things I do is try to set people up with a mentor. Um, social media is phenomenal for that because there are so many groups you type in mushing and up comes a list longer than your arm of different mushing groups. And that's what I did. I put in Siberian mushers. And of course you get Karen Ramstead and Suga Siberians and you, you know, you friend them. Uh, most of these mushers with the big names are more than happy. Rob Cook, who is a kick into pants, one of my personal favorite people. Um, you, you, you get to know them. Um, and with a mentor, you can also figure out what kind of dog that you're most interested in. Because education about buying better, healthier dogs comes along with this. It's not just learning the commands and how to stay on a sled or rig. It's making good choices for dogs. And my mentors that are also dear friends uh, from Howling Spirit uh, Racing Siberian Huskies up in Wisconsin, help me with Siberians because that's the calling of my heart is the Siberians. So you find somebody with this, the kinds of dogs that you're interested in, be Eurohounds, um, or, or Malamutes or Samians, whatever that is, you find those people on Facebook, like you come to Heartland Mushers, it's a good place to start. Um, if you're in Michigan, there is the Mid-Union Sled Haulers, there's Great Lakes Sled Dog Association. I can point everybody to where they need to go, depending on the area of the country they're in, and help them find somebody close by that they can sit down and go through the gear, go through uh, the dogs, what they behave like, you know what I mean? If somebody, a, a young lady I'm helping right now, uh, this is her first time around Siberians really. And she thinks she might like to have Siberians to add to her kennel. So she comes here, you know, let her watch and play with these guys you know, um, set her up with the right people to get her gear from, uh, take her to the trails. And mushers are famous for sharing their expertise and knowledge. I've, it is one of the last um, apprenticeship type communities that I can think of. I think that's true. So let's talk about some of those kind of life lessons and, and basics that people need to know for, let's start with maybe some general care of our sled dogs. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, feeding in association with runs and hydration. Okay. I tell you, my guys, uh, I stick to a schedule. I know not everybody does that for me for the way I live with these, with these dogs, we stick pretty close to a schedule. Um, during the season, when we're training, uh, we are up, I'm up very early. Uh, I, I get up about four in the morning to get chores and things done, paperwork. Um, I will, what's called bait. And that is basically you get water, you make it taste as good as you possibly can. I like to use maybe a, a, a spoon of, ground green tripe in there 
with some supplements. Uh, I use one from CPN called Vertex. There are many on the market, whatever works best, read your labels. Um, I put maybe 10 little pieces of kibble in there, maybe a little meat juice, bone broth, make it just disgusting for them because they love, the, the grosser it is, the more chance they're gonna drink it all up. So they'll have their bait, say sunrise, eight, eight to nine in the morning. Then we hit the trails uh, about an hour later, hour and a half later. And when we get back, from running the trails, our, our, our training. I wait about 45 minutes to an hour before they have a large meal. That's about the time that the muscles are going to start regenerating and building from the workout they just had. So I feed a mainly meat-based diet uh, with a small amount of high quality kibble in it. So they have their probiotics, their enzymes, all their vitamins and minerals and a good high quality kibble. Um, they'll have a large meal, they'll nap through the afternoon and in the evening they might have a drumstick, a raw, raw only, raw chicken drumstick or thigh um, and uh, then it's, it's bedtime and you know we get up and, and go at it again and so that we stick to that schedule even on non-training days. Now that baited dogs like schedules. Yes, they do. They thrive on schedules. It helps them with consistency and frustration, reduces that frustration if they know what to expect. Now that baited Absolutely. water is to improve hydration. How much are they getting of that in the morning before the run? I'm going to take a stab at six to eight cups. Um, I know that sounds like a lot. I've got some dogs that don't drink as much and other dogs that will drink more than that. Um, it's about getting to know your dog and watching them through runs, seeing how their recovery time is, were they dipping in snow? And that's when they reach down and grab a mouthful of snow while you're on the sled. If they're doing a lot of that, you need to increase the amount of hydration they get. So knowing your dog, like the back of your hand is key to everything in mushing. Now, one of the other topics that often comes up when we talk about caring for our sled dogs is foot care, uh, both for dry land and our sled sports. Can you talk to us a little about what your normal routine looks like and some common challenges that people might experience with feet? You know, some of the challenges, I do not, um, we do not have a lot of pavement and we do not run on pavement ever. Uh, we might have to go across the road, but that's the extent of it. Um, some people do and never have a problem. Um, but my guys, because they have a choice to be inside and out, I have to make sure that their feet are tough because they're not out in a kennel setting. But for example, um, my mentors have a beautiful kennel setting where they're outside on, on wonderful sandy soil. Uh, and they have long tethers in their houses and they're, they train quite regularly. Um, I use a little zinc in their diet. Zinc is a good uh, supplement, especially for Siberians. Um, it helps toughen feet up, but uh, I use Musher's Secret. Um, when there's snow on the ground, I just rub a little bit on there. 
but I keep their paws trimmed, the hair between the toes. I get that trimmed because you don't want snowballs, little ice balls will catch on those, those uh, longer hairs and cause them to limp. So I make sure that's all trimmed. Um, nails, of course, you're gonna wanna have, you know, my guys, we go every three to four weeks with the nail trims, um, but they're also training fairly regularly. So they get worn down. Um, booties, Siberians don't necessarily need booty that much. These guys have been bred to have good tough feet. And if a dog doesn't have tough feet, they're not in the breeding program. Uh, and likewise with the eating, a lot of sled dogs, if they're not good eaters, they're out of the program. Uh, the idea, just a sidebar on that, the idea to have a good eating Siberian or sled dog, if you're out on, say, a 30 or 40 mile run and you need to stop and provide calories and nutrition on a break, you need that dog to eat that nutrition because they're going to need it to do the next 20, 30 miles. If they don't eat, just like us, we're going to run out of energy. That dog ends up, you know, maybe even hurting themselves, getting sick. They have to be put in the bag, which is a pain in the behind. Um, and uh, so you need them to eat when it's time to eat. So that's where that comes from. Um, I've got dogs here that have been well-bred, that have amazing tough feet, that have never had to have booties. And I've got some dogs, my first couple of dogs weren't from as nice of kennels not as nice a breeding programs. So I do booty them. Um, punchy, snow. Uh, snow is actually those little crystals under a microscope that have sharp edges on them. Those little sharp edges can get in between their toes and cause fissures that are very painful. I don't know if you've ever had maybe even a, like a hangnail on a pinky toe or, but your nerve endings end in your toes, just, you know, ours and theirs. So that is really painful to these guys, will cause them not to want to run. Again, you got to bag a dog or they're off training for a while. But get your dog, just also always get your dogs used to as puppies having their feet done. Um, play with their feet, take a nail file, practice little file, 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 so they get used to the uh, tickle rumble sensation. Just get them used to having their feet done. You will be so glad you did. So you mentioned some snow, uh, punchy snow, needing to booty some dogs if their feet kind of are not tough enough to handle that. Are there any other conditions in which somebody might need to put a booty on a dog? You know what? Sometimes you're going to have um, some... <sighs> Some people do run on some dirt roads that maybe have some gravel uh, in spots. I recommend booties, although stepping on pea gravel and is still going to do a bruise through fabric and not through fabric. Um, I'm very picky about what I run my dogs on um, because to me, there's no run or race so important as to place them in jeopardy or to hurt them in, in some way, shape or form. And boo-boos happen, they happen all the time, um, but I recommend sticking to dirt, sandy soil, snow, 
things that they would like to run on anyway, grass. So choosing trails is obviously a really important lesson for uh, young mushers to learn. How do you find trails? Kind of what features are you looking for and trying to avoid? Well, it depends on how many dogs you have, how fast you're going to be going. Um, training should never be done at balls to the wall speed. Training is done. My guys, we train with an ATV. They pull the brunt of it. By the time we're done with fall training, they're pulling the brunt of the weight of that ATV themselves without any help. Um, we never go over 14 or 15 miles an hour. Now these racing lines, Siberians, I know people say they're slow Berians, but they are placing with some of the hound teams in the top three and four. Um, at least here in the Midwest, if you watch the Howling Spirit Dogs, the Wrights, um, they have some of the nicest Siberians um, in, in North America. Uh, the rules and the rights in particular uh, have gorgeous dogs. So I'm thinking of some of the trails uh, up in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, there are sled dog only trails up there, but you're going to want to find trails that are not too narrow. So a rig can go through, for example, if you just have, say, three or four dogs on a racing rig, you're going to want to be able to fit through. So, you know, it's single track with that groove in the middle can get you in some trouble. So, you know, dirt roads are wonderful as long as you know the traffic in the area. Um, track 52 um, that are, that's maintained by uh, Langlade uh, County Sled Dog Club up there. Um, those are wonderful trails. It's, it's worth the visit to the area. Um, at Michigan Dog Drivers Association, uh, take care of the Stern Siding Sweetwater Trails. Um, they're wonderful as well. Good people everywhere. But we never go over 14 to 15 miles an hour. And in fall training in particular, that's where you're teaching or refreshing all your commands. And as you come up to say a right turn, which would be G, you wanna make sure you're going at a speed that you can stop and teach if you need to, instead of flying by the turn and missing a teaching opportunity, slow up a little bit. Um, most dogs know how to run fast. Any healthy, medium, large dog knows how to run fast. It's running fast comfortably that the ticket comes in. You've got to build up their wind resistance and their muscles before you can start introducing some of the top speeds at a comfortable pace. And comfortable means safe. So let's and again, uh, you've got, uh, you know, you can watch the Ferrandi, you know, that, that's, that's gone on and see some of these top competitors and read some of the interviews with them. That's how I learned, was listening and reading and paying attention to what some of these top, top mushers do with their dogs. Uh, Karen Ramstead is, is one that told me one of the biggest things with the kennel and growing a kennel is to grow that kennel slowly. Choose your dogs wisely, one dog at a time. Get to know them. Teach them everything that you possibly can before you start adding in another one. 
If you go too fast, you miss opportunities and bonding with that dog. And that's where the trust and the respect come in. And you've got to have that. When you're in a blizzard and you can't see your lead dogs, you better believe you need to trust those dogs to get you home safely. And I've been in that position. And boy, I tell you what, I was real happy. Those girls got us back to the trailhead because I wasn't so sure I could get us there. Now, one of the things, obviously, when we are working with our teams and building our teams, we need to make sure that we're structuring our runs appropriately, making sure that we're building mileage slowly, that we're watching for signs of burnout, either physically or mentally from the dogs. How do you coach young people to start keeping an eye on their dogs and gauging how far they should be going, how many runs a week they should be doing to keep everybody safe? It depends on the breed, the, the age and the health of the dogs. Um, it depends on the nutrition. Um, I try to get everybody nutrition first, get, get the dogs, like any, any machine, like a, a car. If you put in the good fuel, you're gonna have a, an engine that lasts longer, that can go a little further, go a little faster. So we get the nutrition up to speed and, and the mileage in the fall, I will add a mile to my guys every couple of runs. Um, and that is consistent training three to four times a week. Uh, we start out with a mile and a half, two miles. It's fun. Um, and a, a big thing is know your dog's gait. Watch them play in the backyard or whatever, you know, free running that you have them do. Notice their gait from a canter or lope before they break down into a trot. See how they, their body position is. Now, when you're running your dogs, what you're gonna watch for is that same getting ready to break to a trot thing. For sprinting, you don't want them trotting, you want them loping. So what you do before they break down into that trot, bring them to a stop to, whoa, good dogs, whoa. Let everybody catch their breath, right? When they're starting to hop up and down again and everybody's ready to rock and roll, give them the hike up command or whatever you use. Because uh, some people say, let's go. It doesn't really matter as long as the dogs are used to that command. Um, they will hike back up again and, and you watch, you know, you watch your little, your, your GPS watch or the odometer on the ATV and, uh, and, and watch for them to start to get to the point where they're going to break down. If they're tired, take a break, pet those dogs, tell them how good they are, put the brake on, get up there. Good dogs. Um, they want the praise and the happiness from you. And when you praise your dogs, if you don't look like a maniac, lunatic, having a good time, you're not doing it right. These dogs want to hear the high pitch. Every dog in the house just looked at me with their heads up and their ears all pricked up. <laughs> they know that's happy time. And all these dogs care about, I don't care the breed or the age, the size, they want happy humans. You show them happy, they're going to do that again for you. And running should always be happy and positive. 
Now, say if you've got a dog who's starting to get a little sour, the first thing you need to do is call your veterinarian. Talk to the vet. Make sure this dog is healthy. Because most of these dogs, all other things being okay and equal, love to do what they do. If they start to get barn sour, and that's a term equestrians use when the horses flip around on you and take off back to the barn. Well, a lot of dogs will know where the trailhead's coming up and they'll speed up. You can use that to your advantage in races, of course, by um, adding a command to it. Like I tell my guys, good home dog. Um, and then I give them a treat when we get back to the bus and tell them good home dogs. So they associate good home dog with, a, I can't say C-O-O-K-I-E, or they'll all be on top of me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, you know, just something else that, that we do. But, uh, you know, keeping the dogs happy doing what they're doing is tantamount. So getting off and praising your dog so what you stop three times, 10 times. Okay, that's why they call it fall training. I love the idea of, you know, giving them breaks, of course, so that they can maintain that speed that we want and be happy and comfortable doing it. And I also add a uh, find the car cue is my last thing where we kind of race to the finish and then get our cookie yep. at the end. Are there other things that you recommend that people do to kind of keep everything positive, to keep the dogs having a good time or things that people should be looking out for that might be early warning signs that their dog is starting to not enjoy it quite as much? Yeah, if they're not, here's a great example. I know in the learning curve, as for example, with me, as I started to add nicer dogs, not that my original gangsters aren't nice dogs, do not get me wrong. I should say faster dogs. Um, I had to watch to make sure that my original gangsters were not being overrun, like a tug line that's coming loose and the dog kind of almost looks like they're backpedaling, like they're kind of leaned back a little bit, doing kind of a peppy lapew little leapity skippity hop thing. That means they are not comfortable with that speed. It may be that they can't go that fast. It could be that the harness is pinching them. It could be that they've got a sore neck um, because sometimes uh, that neckline can pull them, you know, their partner can pull them a little funny and it causes sore necks. Uh, they could have, uh, 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 they could even have to go potty. Um, it, it's, you gotta look at the physical first because again, these guys, all other things being equal, they love what they do. They love it. And if you have been praising them and teaching them using, um, I know that some people cringe when I say positive reinforcement, I don't because to my guys, everything's positive. Show them what you need um, and then praise them. They do the G over, praise them like a lunatic. High pitch voice, hop up and down, clap your hands. I know a lot of men have trouble getting their voices up that high. Clap your hands and go, yes, yes, yes. Because they cue into that yes, yes, yes. Just like saying good dog. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another thing, but always, you know, a touch base with the vet. If you've got a dog you don't think is having a good time, slow down, 
check the harness, check the feet, check the diet, check the potty, call the vet. Um, that's what they're there for. You know, they are the professionals. They can help you out. I think that's really important. I think a lot of times when we start to see those changes in the dogs, people don't think about checking the medical side, but if something is changing and it's changing quickly and we can't find a cause, then medical is the first thing we need to rule out before we start looking at anything behaviorally. Absolutely. So as you are kind of preparing your dogs for races, uh, is there anything that you do or recommend that people do to kind of keep their nerves in check? I know a lot of people can get nervous as they enter that competition realm. And we always say that we want competition to feel just like training for us and for the dogs, but sometimes people can put a lot of pressure on them or have a lot of expectations and that can make their stress levels higher, which of course can impact the dogs as well. So how do you help people navigate that challenge? You know, it's a, it's a shift in perspective. The, I try to see it like the dogs see it, because again, I think these dogs can show us how to live really amazing, peaceful lives. These dogs, they want to go out and run and have a good time. And when I say do well, I'm not talking about necessarily these dogs are going to go, yes, I'm top of the podium. They're not gonna, they don't think that way. They're like, how much fun did I just have? How much fun did my human just have? If we take the pressure off of ourselves by seeing things more the way that they see things, running your own race. And I actually put up a post this morning in Heartland Mushers about that. Brent Sass has his tattoo, says run your own race. And you know, it's true. We can be our own worst enemy. And some of us are more perfectionists than others because we do want to do well. I want to do well. I want to do well so that people see my dogs and go, wow, and see the wow factor that I see in them. But the wow factor is who's smiling the biggest, you know, and the Red Lantern finisher still finishes that course. And in mushing, I take more of a traditional approach to it. Um, I'm Native American, but in my tradition, we didn't have sled dogs. We weren't in an area, uh, you know, I was Midwestern uh, Native. Um, so we didn't really have sled dogs. We weren't, I'm not Northern. These dogs go out and they want to do well for us. So in a traditional sense, it is, getting the trap line set, feeding the family, making it off the trail in one piece. Because if you go out on some of the longer mushes, the mid distance and distance, you don't know if there's gonna be deer that are going to scare, you know, scare the dogs, a squirrel they're gonna try to chase into the bushes, a downed tree, there's challenges and obstacles that we have to overcome on every trail, just like in life each, each day. And it's not the hand you're dealt, it's how you play that hand. It's character building. And I've watched some of the best people in North America race, but I tell you what, everybody has a bad day and it's going to happen. And once you understand that sometimes you know what happens, 
it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. You're like, you know what? This just because, you know, uh, we had to hook down once on this trait doesn't mean we failed. It is simply, it was our turn to have an obstacle come up, a challenge we had to face. We overcame it. We crossed the finish line. That is the victory. And the dogs, you know, of course, they're like, oh, hook down. Oh, please, come on now. As long as they get running again and everybody's safe and sound, because that's what, you know, the, the tradition of the Red Lantern itself, you know, that the last musher is still on the trail and we don't extinguish that light until they're home safe. So I like to take it back into a more traditional sense. And that's what I, you know, tell my juniors and, you know, people having their first races because it's nerve wracking. It, you know, the, the excitement is heightened, the dogs are wild, there's spectators. And to remind ourselves to go pet the dogs, bring down your blood pressure, breathe, you know, um, do what dogs do when they self-soothe. We start to get in the habit of that and we can go in and take off in our race with clear minds and know that we're our dogs, the trust, the love, and the respect that we've built with these dogs, they will get us around that trail. We believe in them. Just like our, our new uh, I did a rod champ, you know, I believe wild and free. I love what you're saying. It's it's so important, I think, for people to have a way to kind of deal with their own insecurities or stresses and to be able to kind of build that pattern of how to calm themselves back down when they do get stressed. Oftentimes in any sport or training plan, people will set goals for themselves, but obviously certain goals can be harmful if they are unrealistic. So what kind of goals do you coach your newbies into starting to set for themselves in order to keep those expectations realistic so that they can be successful? Okay. Say, uh, you know, we go back again into the fall training and, uh, one of the things I like them to do is be able to have command leaders and a command leader is a leader you can take out in a cornfield that's been mowed and do figure eights serpentines, whatever you want. Um, To me, it's like having a driver's license to drive a car. If you can't control your team, you shouldn't be on the trail because, you know, you will be passing people. There's going to be turns. There's going to be, most of the time, it's a closed trail system, sure. Um, But I like to start have have my juniors look back into fall training. Do you remember when you had to stop and get that G, you had to ask for that G turn seven, eight times. Now we're up to not even having to slow down. You got the G on the fly. We go back to the basics and I step-by-step walk that junior through me to show them, look what you've achieved with this dog. Look what you've achieved. And I have them keep a journal, uh, whether it's daily or weekly, you know, even if it's, you know, um, little mushers, mini musher people who, you know, did the poop scooping, you know, anytime they spend with the dog, mark it down in there. Um, 
So you want to go faster in sprint, of course, and you want to be able to do by the snow season because snow races are longer in distance than the dry land races. A lot of that is because of the temperature. We got cold temperatures in the winter, dogs can go further and faster. So you look back to dry land when you could only do three miles and say, now look at this, my six dog team can do seven miles now. So I go back and we look at the basics of look how far you've come. So those are goals right there that are realistic, that can be met. Now, when you start to shave time off, a lot of this, I know for me, I am the weak link in the team. It is about practice being on the sled, learning to take those turns faster on the snow, learning to communicate with your team, having them, for example, when you call the team up after a turn, because you might want to slow into a, into a turn by using a drag mat. And that's not the brake. It's a piece of rubber that flips down that you can put your foot on that just slows the sled a little bit. So when it's time to call them back up after a turn, you want more of an instantaneous action rather than a chug, 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 chug. You want them to spring, spring into action. Practice and praise. You praise them right, they're gonna treat you right. And you know, you may think your dog isn't that right, but the one thing that dog understands is love and being a good dog. You can focus in on, on where their good dog happiness comes in. You're going to get those instant results. You're going to get the faster call up, the faster takeoff, the faster turns. And for us, I know you had Lori on talking about fitness. Okay, great. See, we can be the weak link. Listen to that podcast. Listen to her. She's incredible incredibly insightful and, and bright. She's got the lowdown on how we can get ourselves in better shape so that we aren't the weak link on the team. Yeah, I think, I think that's very true. And Lori was great on that episode talking about different fitness that we can do as mushers to keep ourselves in good shape. I think it's so important too, that we do look at that team as a whole, not only evaluating how our dogs yes. performed and how our dogs responded to different cues or commands on the trail, but also how we did. And so that we can kind of look back at all of these training runs and either, you know, get feedback from mentors or get feedback from watching video footage of the training run so that we can learn how to, to do better and be better. As you start setting these goals and start evaluating how these training runs went, do you find that there's certain pieces that often tend to be, you know, common challenges with these early runs and these early learning stages? You know, coming out of a long, hot, miserable summer, getting back into the groove again, the dogs are going to be bonkers. First of all, brace yourself. Um, they're gonna be hard to handle. They're gonna be uh, the village idiots on the gang line. So, you know, you just have to be patient and understanding. And, and just like any squeaky wheel, you have to grease every little gear. I know it takes time, but each dog is gonna need a little something different. You might have uh, yearlings that just got harness broken the previous uh, winter. 
Um, you might have some veterans that are getting a little squishy around the midsection. Um, you know, so every dog is going to need individual attention. Get out your notebook, write down the weights, you know, uh, write down how much they're eating, do your body assessments daily, do your stretches on them, watch some videos of health or vet healthcare professionals doing massages, stretches, know your dog know if somebody favors one side over the other. Um, fall training is when you work out all the kinks. You know, that's when you figure out who likes to run on the right more than the left. Some people like to correct that and make them run on the other side too. Some people are like, they're happiest here. We're gonna leave them here. It's what works for you and your dogs because there are as many training techniques as there are trainers. It is about individualizing because you know your dogs, you know their personality, you know that, you know, that like my bubby likes to bellow for his food. Somebody else were to hear that bellow, they'd probably think there was a walrus in heat, you know, but no, <laughs> that's just bubby bellowing for his food. So we all know our dogs, you know, as, as well as we know ourselves. Tailor that program to each dog. You're the coach. And the coach can do the entire team and individual training. So as a team, you, you figure out where to put which puzzle piece, who plays what spot best, put them together, and then it's just consistent practice. For anyone who might be looking to kind of take their training to the next level or maybe get a little more serious in the sled dog sports world, do you have any tips on how they might find a mentor or any tips in general that we haven't talked about today yet? You know, listen to your heart because this is a lifestyle of passion and it should be fun. First and foremost, no matter what you're doing, it's got to be fun because these dogs thrive on our love and happiness. If mid distance is your passion, uh, if distance is your passion, find the, the groups on Facebook. Um, I know a lot of the quote pet groups are annoying. Uh, people, you know, show you pictures of, you know, a dog's ear hanging off and they're like, should I go to the vet? Go to musher groups. You're not going to have, you're not going to need some of this stuff there. Um, talk to the mushers. If you think you want to go and run, say, uh, you know, uh, the, the copper dog, uh, and you, you're looking at the one, you know, the 150, find some of those mushers, go back, look at, at who was placing the highest at some of these races. Go to ISDRA, look up the, the, the race results. Um, go back in uh, iditarod.edu look at some of this stuff, find those people, reach out to them. You're not going to bother them. If they don't get back to you right away and it's during the season, they, they will, you know, they're, they're just busy with dogs. Reach out, talk to them about the steps they took um, and, and find your heart. And if it's not racing, then don't find, uh, a, you know, find trails and just have fun. 
in the sprint world, you've got the non-sanctioned races versus the sanctioned races. If you're just looking to have fun at races, the mid or the yeah the mid union sled haulers or mush has some of the most laid back fun races I've ever been to. If you want to run for points, ISDRA, you've got the Wisconsin Trailblazers, you've got the Pennsylvania Sled Dog Club. Um, if you want to travel with the dogs, there are groups on, on social media for traveling. I'm happy to show you how I set up my shuttle bus. Um, mushers will share with you. Tell them what your goals are. Tell them what you'd like to do, and they can help guide you better, just like you know, good mentor, and guide you so that you can uh, meet your dreams and your destiny with the dog's head on. I love that. Thank you so much, Cruz, for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. I know this will inspire a lot of people, including people that don't have that local group that you know that you're fortunate to have. Hopefully, they'll be able to gain some good information from this and help grow their team. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.